seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. As they sang that song, I thought of that verse from our text in Hebrews that we're going to be looking into today. Jesus. I don't think I've ever heard that song before. Is that something new? Is it? Okay, well, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. And to everyone who contributes so much to the music ministry here at Fellowship. Happy New Year to all of you. If you take your Bibles this morning and open them up to Hebrews chapter 3, Pastor and I, uh, in looking ahead to the new year, have decided that we're going to take this section of Hebrews and put it all together in one lump over a couple, three Sundays. Not sure quite how that will work out, but however it works out, because it is a section of Scripture that would be very hard to assimilate and to get the value of if it were not kind of sequential in one lump, if we spread it out over too much time. And so we're going to concentrate and focus on chapter 3, verse 7, through the end of chapter 4. This is a very amazing, uh, tremendously interesting section of Scripture for us. As you know, the book of Hebrews is trying to show us that Christ is superior to all the rudimentary, to all, to all else, as far as salvation or living life for God. Jesus Christ is the superior one. And we found out here in looking through Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that he is a superior to the prophets of the Old Testament. We found after following through on that into chapter 2 that he is superior concerning the angels. We found out in chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, that he is superior to Moses and the law. And you remember that people held Moses and the law in very, very high esteem. And now we're turning to chapter 3, verse 7, through the end of chapter 4, and we are finding that the rest promised by Jesus is far superior than the rest promised by Joshua under the law and the entry into the promised land. So I hope you'll follow with attention and care as we look at these verses here in Hebrews and study this text. It is important that you know as we open up our Bibles to Hebrews, that Hebrews is a special book. Not that all the books aren't special, but it's a special book in the sense that it's written to Hebrew believers. The Hebrew believers were people that we could say had special needs. They were kind of a special needs group because they had a lot of baggage, maybe we could call it. They carried with them a lot of traditions, uh, they carried with them a lot of experiences in their worship that created warm fuzzies, we like to call them, as they worshiped God. And all that was changing drastically as they became Christians and began to follow the Lord. And if we look at chapter 3, verse 1, we find that the, the individuals reading this or being addressed by the book of Hebrews, by the author thereof, calls the people he's ministering to holy brethren, emphasizing the fact that they are a set-apart group of brethren. They're not just ordinary. He's, he's talking to true Hebrew believers, okay? Now, that's not to say there aren't unbelievers in the mix. There always are, when you speak to a large group of people, unbelievers mixed in with believers. But at this point in time, and in this section of Scripture, he's talking to people who 
are true believers in Christ. They are called holy brethren. Look in your Bibles, chapter 3. I hope you all have your Bibles open today to chapter 3. I do not have any notes for you. I want you to get into your Bible and look closely at the Bible and see the words and the phrases and the verses and the themes uh, directly from the Word of God. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. We're going to run into that word partakers again later in the text. Partakers means uh, people who are sharing in the heavenly calling of Christ, but it also has the idea of a group of people sharing together as they look to Christ. And then we have partakers of the heavenly calling, which speaks of people who have been called of God, yet come forth in their decisions of faith to follow him. So it is the believing Hebrew people that we're talking about. And as we look at this section of Scripture today, I want to give you a basic outline to kind of memorize and, and keep in view as we look through this chapter. A basic three-point outline, really. A fourth point to introduce it. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, was the section on Christ is superior to Moses, which we've covered in the past. Now we're going to look in chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, the rest of Joshua, the rest that was promised by God to the people of God in, in leaving Egypt to be carried through and carried out by Joshua, which he did. He took them across the Jordan River and into the promised land, and he carried out the commission that was given to him. So we call that the rest of Joshua, chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 19, essentially the rest of chapter 3, the rest of Joshua. And then in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and through verse 10, we have the rest of Christ that is far superior to the rest of Joshua. The rest of Joshua we're going to be calling off and on the Canaan rest because it was the promised land of Canaan that they would inherit and constituted the promise that was given by God to Joshua and the people. Now we come to the uh, rest of Christ, which we'll define a little bit later on, but was promised by Christ to all who would come unto him. And then thirdly, we have in verses 11 to 13, or actually 11 to 16, the exhortation to enter into the rest of Christ. And this uh, is, is very important in our Christian lives. We, when we talk about believing, we often think of believing unto salvation. But in the book of Hebrews, many times, I'm not completely through my study of the book of Hebrews, but at least in this section, and also in the section that Pastor Wesco talked about uh, New Year's Eve, chapter 11, the emphasis is not on faith that is to salvation, the emphasis is on faith after salvation. Faith after salvation. If you look through chapter 11 and find all those amazing things that were done by God through the prophets and the different people noted there, you will find out they were things God was able to do through them because they believed God. In fact, in the midst of that chapter, I believe it's verse 6, it says, For without faith we cannot please God. That's a message to believers. That was the message to the Hebrew saints in this day and age. 
that they had to believe God. And in fact, the failure of their brethren in the past generation was that they had failed to believe God in his promises to lead them into the promised land. So we're going to start there in chapter 3, verse 7. We've preached on some of this before, but we're just going to look at this broadly to bring everything together as we then go on with the text. So let's take a moment here and ask the Lord for his direction. Heavenly Father, we come to you as we open this portion of Scripture, which perhaps because of its Jewish perspective is sometimes difficult for us to understand. And we pray that today you would open your word to us. We pray that you would give us the illumination, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. For we know, Lord, that no Scripture can be properly interpreted no matter how smart we may be or how careful we may be or how scholastically or scholarly we may be, except it be illuminated by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. So we ask that illumination, that blessing upon us this morning as we now open your word and move through these verses and see the great things that you have for us, the warnings to keep us from trouble and the exhortations to lead us into truth and rest. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, as we look at this section and begin, we find out in verse 7, it says, Wherefore? And the wherefore there is referring back to what has just been said about Moses. Christ is greater than Moses than the law and the law. And so it's moving on. Wherefore, because of that, moving on now to another subject, namely the subject of rest the rest that Joshua offered to the people that God had promised to the people in the Old Testament times when they came out of Egypt in the Promised Land, and the rest that is offered by Christ to the Hebrew believers today and to all of us. And this rest is uh, something that is associated with the Holy Spirit. Now, from chapter 7, verse 1, down through chapter 7, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 7, down through chapter 3, verse 11, is a quotation, almost word for word, of Psalm 95 in the Old Testament. And Psalm 95 in the Old Testament was written by David, and it looks back on the Hebrew children at the time when they were offered rest in Canaan. And they refused it. And, and David is going to talk about those things and offer a rest again to the people of his time. Uh, however, there's one notable change in the quoting of Psalm 95, and that is the mention of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, who was in the Old Testament, was part of the Trinity, was hinted at many times in the Old Testament, is clearly revealed unto us in the New Testament, and is vital to our understanding and our living of the Christian faith. As the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice. Today, today. Uh, New Year's Day, of course, was yesterday, and the night before New Year's Eve. We often use New Year's Eve and New Year's Day as a time to reflect on our past year, our past lives, Make resolutions for the future. 
And uh, then we kind of see them get eroded away sometimes. Because, you know, one of the main reasons is we make the resolution, but then we leave it lay and don't take action to see that it's fulfilled. And after we leave it lay for a while, it becomes old and stale and is replaced by other things and is forgotten and eventually lost. But as we open this psalm now, and these lessons are going to be laid out before our eyes, the Holy Spirit himself is saying to us, take, take heed. Uh, today, is it, we're going to come back to this about three times, I think, two or, th two or three times. Here's one of three times. When the Lord is saying, when it comes to spiritual matters, take action immediately. Take action immediately. Many in the day of Moses, uh, Joshua, did not trust God immediately, but put it off and hardened their hearts in the time of David and in the time of Hebrews and in the time today. It says, today, if you will hear his voice, are you listening to God today in this new year that's come in? There's an urgency here. And as we said last week, do not put off spiritual decisions. Now, I'm going to be emphasizing that again because the text does. That's kind of interesting and maybe kind of strange. But then again, there must be some problem we have with regard to spiritual decisions because you know we all tend to put them off. We all tend to say, well, I'll think about that tomorrow. Well, I don't need to do anything about that today. And something comes into our lives that changes our thoughts, replaces our concern, uh, replaces the moving of God in our conscience, and it never comes to pass. We're admonished as we begin this section of Scripture here that goes all the way through the end of chapter 4 to think about action today, to hear his voice, not only in the sense of audibly hearing his voice through the Word of God and through study of the Word, hearing his voice speak to us through the Holy Spirit in the Word of God, but we, we need to obey we need to follow through. Do not put off spiritual decisions. Now, as we move on and look at verse 8, we have a command that's placed before us. And uh, this command that's placed before us is that we should not harden our hearts as they did in the day of accountability. They had a problem because they delayed their decisions and as a result of that, they became hard against what God wanted to do. Um, because of that, they had a loss of blessing, a loss of the blessing of Canaan, a loss of reward, and sometimes it can even result in a loss of death. And so God says, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, this brings us to a new word here, provocation. What is the provocation? It's, uh, it's not just a provocation, it's the provocation. It was a very significant crisis turning point 
in the life of the nation of Israel as they left Egypt. Likewise, there can be a provocation in your life, a significant crisis turning point in which things move in a different direction because of our failure to obey immediately in spiritual matters. And uh, it's, it's important to understand that. And it is important to understand, as we talk about that, the historical background of this psalm here. The children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, and they went into the wilderness, and God performed all those miracles of departure from Egypt, and he provided them with a tabernacle, and he provided them with man, and he provided them with quail. He came down in the glory and led them through the wilderness and through the Red Sea and did many amazing, miraculous things. And it finally came to the point where God was going to lead them into the promised land, which he had promised that he would do. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, it says, The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. That's how God described the military campaign into the promised land. So when Joshua and Caleb came back from the 12 spies who had inspected the land, they saw the difficulties there. They saw the giants. They saw the problems. But they remembered the promise of God. And the promise of God was greater than the difficulties of conquering the land. And they gave a good report and said, we should go in. We, we can take them. God has promised us we will overcome. But 10 of the 12... 10 of the 12 did not agree. And the multitudes, as we're going to see, because of a lack of believing and faith in what God had promised, believed the report of the 10 and not of the two with God. <laughs> Strange how people sometimes put the majority of man's opinion against the minority with God's opinion. But that's what they did. And this became a major, crucial turning point that was known in history among the Jews as the provocation. Now, the provocation was the result of their disbelief in God's promise to deliver them and bring them into the promised land. They provoked God to the point where finally God said, that is it. Uh, you aren't going to go into the promised land anymore because you lack the belief in my promise. You're not believing my promise that I will sustain you, that I will go before you, that I will fight for you. So you're not going to go into the promised land. And the group we would call the Exodus generation, those who came out of Egypt, that Exodus generation were condemned to death in the wilderness. And it would be their children who would enter into the promised land. There were physical consequences that resulted. Now, it's not that everyone, and here, here we go back to the idea that the faith and believing in Hebrews here often, especially here in Hebrews 11, is not the faith that brings salvation. Those who came out of Egypt, in the picture of the type and so forth, the, the departure from Egypt was a picture of salvation. They put the blood over the posts and on the doors, and they came out, and they were a mixed multitude, we're told, and they did some things that uh, 
clearly illustrated they did not have faith in a living God, such as the gods at the foot of Mount Sinai. But they were, believe it or not, a, a believing people, generally speaking. And yet, they did not believe God, and it came to the point, because of all, all these things, the, 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 the foot of Mount Sinai, the failure to believe God on entry into the Promised Land, the God finally said, that's it. You're not going to the Promised Land. It'll be the generation after you that goes. The provocation was the point at which God finally provoked in his wrath by the disbelief, unbelief of his children that he finally brought on them consequences materially and physically in their life that, they could, that would never come to be. Blessing of going into the promised land that would never be because of their unbelief. Now, we're not talking here about losing your salvation, and this is why some texts become a problem for people in Hebrews. We're not talking here about losing your salvation. We're talking here about losing the blessings that God had for his people and losing them because the people did not believe God. They believed him and been saved. But as they walked the godly life, or the, the life of the Old Testament saint, they didn't walk it in faith. Hence, chapter 11. These were examples of people who did walk it in faith. And you see all the amazing things that God was able to do with them. But these people, by refusing to fight their way into the promised land, having understood that God promised he would go before them, they were being unbelieving. And they finally came to a point that although God forgave them, and we went through in a previous sermon, showed you that, Though he forgave them of that, yet there were consequences in their life on earth that kept them from the full blessing they could have had. And the same can happen to us. We can provoke God so badly as believers that there could come a point in our lives when we don't lose our salvation, but the blessings that God wishes to bestow upon us, the rest that God wishes us to have, is denied us because we are in unbelief. We are not walking by faith. That was the Exodus generation. Then the wilderness generation were those that were born in the wilderness who entered into Cana and the Promised Land. So that was a provocation. Now returning to chapter 3, verse 8, look at your Bibles. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of the temptation in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts. That is a command. Um, how do you harden your heart? We could probably, probably, we, we could certainly have a couple sermons on that. How do you harden your heart? Well, you harden your heart when you, you rationalize you come up with reasons that you feel are justified before God for not doing this and doing something else that maybe isn't as good or you shouldn't do. Rationalizing. Uh, coming up with a logical argument on why you shouldn't do what you know God wants you to do. There's excuse. Oh, but I've got this limitation, I've got that limitation. I'm sure that these different ones I'm mentioning 
were in the hearts and minds of some of those Israelites that didn't want to go forward into the promised land. They made excuses. Uh, they disregarded, just got it out of their mind. Uh, didn't read their Bible or follow the scripture. They just disregarded. And another one is they, is they is let fleshly lust control your thinking instead of God's word. And we could list many more. Those are just examples that came to my mind as I meditated on this verse. But here, here's, here's the lesson here in chapter 3 and verse 8. Harden not your hearts. And part of that comes with not putting off spiritual decisions. Because if you put off spiritual decisions, your heart, by virtue of putting off that which you know God wants you to do, will become harder and harder and harder and harder until you can come to a point of a provocation in your life where judgment comes because you're not following the Lord and believing him. Verse 9, when your fathers tempted me, they tempted him by examining him, what he did to know his nature or character. They proved him. That's a test to learn his genuineness. When your fathers tempted me, it proved me, and saw my works 40 years, not just a few days, but over a period of 40 years, every day he ministered unto them. Uh, the, for these people, can we say it this way? The apologetics and evidences were more than sufficient to justify the truth that God had promised them. They were more than sufficient. They had seen so much in their lives. They had seen the exodus and all these things we've already mentioned. And they had no excuse. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works 40 years, they had no excuse. The apologetics and evidences were more than sufficient for them to know who God was, what he was capable of doing, and what he wanted. And by the way, the same is true for us today. I say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't see the Red Sea part. I didn't see the pillar of fire and smoke. Well, look back in your Bibles, though, at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3 of 4, it says there, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. He was saying to the Hebrews of that time, Look at the tremendous testimony that's been put before your eyes. Yes, they saw the splitting of the Dead Sea, but you saw the apostles raise men from, uh, crippled from birth back to walking again. And you, you heard their message. You, you, you heard those who followed Jesus. And we today have the record here, the inspired record of these things having happened. The apologetics and evidence for them back in the times just after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, where they are now walking 
quite a, quite a ways, maybe almost four years after the death of Christ when Hebrews was written. So, you know, the, the events of Jesus' life are still fresh, but they're not ripe like they were at one time. A lot more like our era, where it's through the recorded word of God and not by sight, but through understanding the recorded word of God and its evidences that we know these things, he, these things are true. Verse 10, wherefore God says, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. One of the characteristics of our God and uh, we're made in his image. That's why we get grieved. Grief, emotion. God is a God of emotion. He gets upset about things. He, he feels hurt. He, he's frustrated. He, he feels all these different kinds of emotional feelings that, that we have, except perhaps the ones that are motivated for the wrong reasons and are sinful. But the different emotional characteristics that we have are true of God. That's because we're in his image. And it grieved him. It really hurt him that in their heart, they always, they always chose something other than what God wanted for them or most of the time. They erred in their heart, in their thinking. The heart is the thinking, the emotions, the whole person inside. And not only that, they have not known my ways. They didn't care to study out and find out what God's ways were and how he did things. They didn't pay attention. They didn't devote themselves to studying the word of God apart from just when the preacher's preaching so they could have a real understanding of what God wanted them to do. We could make the application this, are you living life your way or God's way? Is your heart a heart after the world, a heart after your own wishes, or is it a heart after God's wishes? Are your ways the ways that you have tested or that you're seeking to carry out because they're God's ways? Or are they the world's ways or your own ways? Are you living life your way or God's way just to get it done? Just assuming that you know it all. Just to do that which is convenient. Verse 11. So says God, I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. And that ends the quotation of Psalm 95. The rest here is the Canaan rest. They continued in disobedience and they were denied entry into the promised land. Uh, there's a little bit of a issue here that I hope you don't get too upset about <laughs> We have some wonderful hymns, but some of them don't quite accurately represent what the scriptures teach. And when we come to this subject, I'm afraid this is one of those places. Canaan's rest. You know any songs, but some of you right now can think in your head of some songs that talk about crossing Jordan to Canaan. Canaan is pictured in the hymn as heaven. And crossing the Jordan is the valley of the shadow of death. But that's not what it is here in this text. 
Uh, there is so much difficulty in understanding these verses here in these couple of pages. And some of it is because of what exegetes or preachers or students of the word call presuppositions. And uh, because we've heard so many hymns and loved so many of those hymns down through time that talk about Canaan being the promised land where heaven is, uh, we've come to think that in our minds, but in the picture here in Hebrews, that's not what it is. Here in Hebrews, coming out of Egypt into the wilderness was the salvation experience. Remember, the brought over the doorposts and so forth. So that pictures salvation. The crossing over into Canaan was following God by faith in order for him to give you rest. Because the whole point, the, the, the promised land was called the rest. It was the place where they would go under Joshua's leadership while they were still alive and possess it, and God would give them rest from their enemies. We find that stated all through Scripture. It was the Canaan rest. Uh, they were still saved, those people who were in the wilderness, but they had not the faith to carry them through life and please God and thereby enter into the rest, which was Canaan. And when they got to Canaan, they were promised that they would be delivered from all their enemies. You know, they, Israel, they were constantly being plagued by this nation or that nation that were fighting against them. And it was a constant battle, a constant, a constant effort to stay alive as a nation and move forward. But God promised that Canaan would be a place where they would cast out their enemies and take possession of the land and that it would be their place of rest. And when we look at the text, which we'll see some in a moment as we go through this, uh, that's what happened when they went into Canaan, all their enemies were, were destroyed and they were given rest. Now, grant you, there were a few left in the land and we're told in Scripture that they were left there to test them. Uh, they could have driven them out. They were instructed to drive them out. Joshua, when it says that he, he commanded and took the land, he, took, he, he crushed all, all significant major uh, resistance in the land. There was no one who could rise up with any kind of power or strength to take control of the land. But there were pockets, there were individual peoples left here and there with which the religion of such offended the Jew and they intermarried and the problems developed. Canaan's rest was forfeited through unbelief that God will keep his promises here on earth if we obey him. Result of unbelief was that God will keep his promise. Judgment during this life, the ones who did not go in were not condemned to hell, but they were forbidden the promised rest, land of rest. There was physical judgment, hardship in the wilderness, even unto death. All of them would die in 40 years Death would come upon them, and they would never reach this land of rest in their faith because they lacked faith. And there is loss of future reward many times. 
when we are like that. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9, it says, For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. There can come a point of provocation in your life as a believer resulting in loss of blessing, perhaps a loss of reward, and even death. There's a verse in the New Testament that in my young Christian life often puzzled me. Uh, but as I study Hebrews here, it's beginning to come together a little bit. It's found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, and it reads like this. If any man see his brother, okay, we're, not, we're talking about believers here, not unbelievers. If any man see his brother, that's a believer, sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death, he being God. Then the next phrase goes on to say, there is a sin unto death. There is a sin unto death. There is a point of provocation in the life of brethren, people who believe. And when you reach that point of provocation, you don't lose your salvation, but you may lose your life because God brings judgment in the midst of the provocation when we had totally gone on and on and on and disregarded him. And finally, God says, that's enough. Sometimes we are not able to do things or not qualified to do things in this life that we could have done. Sometimes we don't receive the contentment. People going all over today discontent and blaming God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. People are dying. Now, we, we are presumptuous to go around and say, that's why he died. God knows. But there are such people who have come to a point of provocation in their lives, and God has taken their lives. Uh, we also learned here that there's an accountability at the age of 20. Somehow God held those who were 20, and uh, I don't know if it was 20 and above or 20 below, but that was a mark of, of maturity of some type that God recognized in the way he conducted himself in these matters. Okay, so that was the rest of Joshua analyzed. Uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Now we're going to talk about the rest of Joshua applied. Here comes the warning. Ready? Look in your Bibles at verse 12 and put your finger there but look back up to verse 7 verse 7 says wherefore that's the text then the rest is all this illustration we've been talking about the wherefore actually picks up at verse 12 take heed wherefore take heed because Christ is greater than Moses because Christ is greater than anything else you can imagine and he's going to show talk about Joshua's rest here Take heed, brethren, take heed, take heed of the past as you look to the future. Take heed of the past as you look to, this is a pretty good New Year's Day sermon, isn't it? Some people say, well, I don't see any 
any purpose in history. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. What they did, you can do. They made a mistake. Don't make the same mistake. Take heed. That's a command, by the way. It's an imperative in the Greek. Take heed, brethren, lest there... This is, this is written to believers. Brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Uh, not believing what God has promised is, is evil. It's wicked. It's not just take it or leave it. When God makes a promise and he gives a, an offer of fulfilling a promise, he wants us to believe him. And that makes it possible for him to carry through on his promise. We are in the vine. We are branches on the vine. But without him, we can do nothing. And when we're not believing what he's promised us, we're not in him, and we can't do anything. We can't do nothing. Take heed of the past as you look to the future. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's the negative side of the command. Do you daily believe the promises of God or are you constantly strained back into the world's way? What's the solution? Well, verse 13 is the solution. The next verse. But exhort one another daily. Verse 12 is the negative side. Verse 13 is the positive side. But exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's that hardening again. What's that hardening? It says exhort one another. Exhort is the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, parakaleo. Uh, it means to call alongside. To exhort one another is to come up beside another. And in whatever area they have needs or problems, support them, lift them up. It's a powerful tool of drawing people to believing uh, in God and his promises. You know, we talk all the time about witnessing to people who are unsaved. Well, here is another aspect where we're exhorting our brethren who are saved. We have a ministry to those outside to give them the gospel and see them come to Christ. We have a ministry on the inside among our brethren of coming up beside them and helping them when they have trouble. Tremendously powerful tool. How many people are caught up in wrong religion because of relationships? Because they've become friends with someone or have attached themselves to someone in some kind of a relationship. Relationships are powerful things. And these Jews that were drifting back into Judaism, if, if the church, the little church there, would reach out to them and enfold them and exhort them and come alongside them, it was a powerful tool to keep them in the New Testament church, the little church. Because a lot of them were going back toward Judaism because they had friends there. They had people, they had relationships there. And when the persecution started coming for being a Christian, they said, I'm going to go back and be with my friends. I can't take this alone. 
Now, if the church acts right, they come up beside them and say, oh, yes, you can. Let me tell you about Christ and his power. The antidote for developing a hard heart is participating in a caring and encouraging community of believers or local church. Now, all you snowbirds out there this morning <laughs> and sickies, you know, it's wonderful we have the web to be able to participate and witness the services. But that's not a long-term solution to your spiritual needs because you can't fulfill this verse unless you're physically present here with one another to exhort one another. Of course, you can do it to a certain extent outside the church during the week, and you should, and that's part of it. But the meeting of the church together is a time of great opportunity to encourage people to find out where they're at when their hearts are soft from the preaching of the Word of God and from the fellowship with God's people and from the burdens of the week that they carry into church with them, ready to share with someone who will listen to them and come alongside them and help them and encourage them. Tremendous, powerful thing. Tremendous, powerful thing. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. <laughs> urgent, it's urgent. While it is called today, while it's ripe, while it's fresh, while they're hurting, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The antidote for developing a hard heart is participating in a caring and encouraging community of believers or local church. In this text here, in verse 13, it says deceitfulness of sin. In the Greek language, the article is there. It reads, in the deceitfulness of the sin. Now, depending on how you interpret that Greek article, you can think of it in two different ways. You can say the sin is the concept, the whole broad band of sin, in which case you translate it the way it's translated, through the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, or it can mean the, the deceitfulness of the sin and be talking about the sin of, of hardening your hearts and and coming to a point of provocation in your life. This sin is deceitful because it offers an immediate, this is, this is in the context of the Jews now, going back into Judaism. Uh, the sin of, of provoking God by going back into Judaism, believers going back into Judaism, this sin is deceitful because it offers an immediate, honorable, or easy relief to their present situation. The, uh, the people are there, they know. Uh, they know how they're comfortable in that environment, worshiping in that environment, because they've been there since they were children. It was a tremendous transition for the Jewish people to come into the Christian faith. Verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. This verse is very difficult. When you read it, when you read it, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. It makes it sound like if we don't hold our confidence steadfast to the end, 
then we are not partakers of Christ. And we suddenly have been pe become people who think you can lose your salvation. And many and many people have gone back and forth over this verse. It's one of those verses in the Scripture, I hope you can understand this, where the Greek language cannot be brought into English and communicated in a way that is precise, short, and understandable. Every, every individual who translates Scripture, including the King James translators, have decisions to make of literal versus explanation. Uh, they, the King James translators were very literal in their translation. And they didn't worry necessarily about explaining everything to the point they, th they thought, maybe thought they understood it, because the problem with that is then you don't know what Scripture is compared to what they believe and have put in the translation by paraphrase or by adding words. So they're very frugal about that, using a minimum of words. And in order to get the concept across of this verse, they would have had to add some words, and they didn't want to do that. And the reason for that is that in the verse, look at the verse now, 314, for we are made partakers of Christ. Excuse me, a little technical here, hold on. The are made is a perfect tense verb. In Greek, perfect tense represents something that is completed in the past but has ongoing effect into the future, into the present. Uh, the, the books illustrate it, the, the, the Greek exegesis books illustrate it by a dot followed by a line. The dot is the event. It happened. The line is the consequence that continues on after it happened. So when you read this text here, for we are made partakers of Christ, it is saying that we in the past were made partakers of Christ, genuinely saved. Remember that word partaker? We had it back here in chapter 3, verse 1. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. We run across this word again here. We are participating in Christ with others. That's the idea of partaker, the vocabulary of the word. But it's something that happened in the past. But since it happened, and since we're genuinely saved, then throughout our lives, there should be an exhibition on the outside of what's going on and going on on the inside. And if there isn't, something's wrong. You haven't lost your salvation, but something's wrong. Remember, our whole idea here uh, is, is losing material blessing because we have come to a point of provocation where we're forgiven, we're believers, but we're not following God in belief. And we don't lose our salvation for that, but we lose the rest that we could have had in Christ. We lose opportunity that we could have had in Christ. So there's a matter of definition, a matter of syntax here. Here's, here's a broad paraphrase. When we were saved, we became partakers of Christ outwardly, reflecting our inward person. But how shall our inward person be known if not reflected in our outward person by holding the same beginning of our confidence and continuing in that confidence steadfast unto the end? Key words there. 
but how shall our inward person be known? That's the concept here. One uh, Greek expert has translated it like this, trying to be very literal. For we have become participators of Messiah, and as a present result are participators of him. That is shown, see those are words that are added to the, in the, to the literal translation, that is shown if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast and to the end. He's saying here, if you're a believer, you should look like one. You're a believer, you've trusted Christ. When somebody looks at your life, they should see the ongoing presence of that decision that was made some time ago. Not that we're judging you, you're going to lose your salvation if you no longer exhibit it. The idea is you should be continuing to show it. Indeed, the emphasis here on the if is indeed. Verse 15, while it is said today, there we are again, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That If you go back to chapter 3, verse 3, uh, or chapter, chapter 3, verse 8, he's saying the same verse over again. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He's quoting the psalm again. He's quoting the psalm again. So I was said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Do not delay spiritual decisions. That's how you get a hard heart. That's how you look on the outside something different than what you are in the inside. That's why your testimony is rotten even though your heart may be right as far as salvation is concerned, your heart is not right as far as faith is concerned, and that makes you look ugly. It doesn't make you look like one who has the enthusiasm of someone who was just saved. While it is said today, if he will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, do not delay spiritual decisions. I wanted to get a little further. Okay, so now, we've looked at the rest of Joshua. It was analyzed in verses 7 to 11, and it was applied in verses 12 to 15. Now, in verses 16 to 19, it is going to be summarized, transition. And just, just to kind of make sure we round out this message before I let you out of here, Notice how it is finally concluded in chapter 3, verse 19, the last chapter of the verse. And we'll fill in the middle next time. It says, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. There's a problem in the lives of Christians, especially these Hebrew Christians, that they believed God to be saved, and they were genuinely saved, but they're not believing God to get them through the Christian life to face the challenges, the callings, the leadings of God. They're not trusting him, and he can't bless them. And it can come to a point of provocation in your life. And you can fail to obtain the rest that God promises to the believer. And we're going to see that specifically as we move on next week. So please follow in this series, if you would. If you're not able to be here, follow on live stream or follow up by viewing the video some other time. This is, uh, this is a really important material for us believers as we look back and see what happened with these Hebrew Christians.
and the need for faith in our lives. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. Lord, give us strength to obey, to not harden our hearts, to not delay spiritual decisions. Lord, I know there is in this congregation people you are prompting to make spiritual decisions. Perhaps they're to do with their own private life. Perhaps they're to do with some decision they need to make in regard to church membership or baptism or, or, or following you in some calling or whatever it may be, Lord. Help us not to delay making spiritual decisions and harden our hearts. Make us sensitive to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.